0: Free Range American Podcast Presented by BlackRifleCoffee.com Hey guys, in this episode I sat down with Malcolm Gladwell for about an hour and a half. Malcolm, if you don't know who he is, he's a New York Times bestselling author. He's written some of I think some of the greatest books uh, I've read or had the opportunity to read in the last several years. Blink, Outliers. Uh, his, latest, his latest book is uh, Bomber Mafia. So I'm, I'm just finishing Bomber Mafia. We talked about that for quite a, quite a while. So about 45 minutes, we talked about Bomber Mafia. Then we switched into some uh, education reform. We talked about some of his most interesting stories. Like I love this conversation. Hour and a half long. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, man. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Malcolm Gladwell. I'm a huge fan. I've been a huge fan for a long time. So this is a big deal for me as far as being able to get you on the show. Uh, yeah, Blink was my first introduction to you. So uh, <laughs> I know there are, there's been multiple other books out there that you've written. Uh, you've done a ton of interviews. You're... Uh, you're you're so interesting to listen to on your audiobooks, and your books are so detailed in a way that's also uh fairly simplified for dummies like me. So I think that's great. Uh, <laughs> I will take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> uh uh, so I just I, I feel like a bad fan. Um, so I'll just have to fully admit this. Um your your last book. Uh, was it bomber mafia is that right uh-huh. uh, yeah i didn't realize that that was out, so last night um I was searching through a bunch of stuff that you'd done. I was like, gosh, I gotta download this and listen to it so i'm i 've got about two hours left uh i uh-huh. I stayed up late last night listening to to it, not in preparation of this interview, but it 's super interesting uh it, it's it 's fascinating yeah. um so Thank you so much for doing the interview. I really appreciate it. And the other thing is, is uh, I my number one question is, you've been doing this for a, a long time, obviously, but I, I'm always fascinated as to how are you getting your subjects. As far as where where do these come from? Are you are you like riding your bike in the park, or you, and you're thinking about something? Are you reading something else? Is it a combination of things? Can you pinpoint it? Sometimes, I mean, it's pretty.
1: It's all over the map. I mean, right. the bomber mafia. You know, my most recent book. Um, I, I, it was really random. I was in Tokyo for a totally different reason. We were doing a thing with Lexus, right? And so we were driving, basically, really fast cars <laughs> on this on this insane. You wouldn't see the greatest test track. In the history of test tracks, it's the test track Lexus built for itself outside of Tokyo. Really, it's unbelievable. Like it, I mean, I can't even. Anyway, so I'm over there and I go to this little tiny museum. Um, I'd heard about somehow, which is a private museum, not even a, and it was dedicated to the memory of uh, what happened on the uh, on the night of. March, was it uh, March 6th, uh, 1945, yep. when uh, Curtis LeMay uh, uh, firebombed Tokyo? Right. And it was this kind of completely eye opening experience. So imagine like it's not a fancy museum, it's basically someone's house. Mm. And it's just photographs and artifacts. And unlike many museums, there's almost no judgment. Right. So it doesn't tell you what to think, it just says this happened. Mm-hmm. And here's the kind of evidence of what happened. And I came away from that completely fascinated by I you know, knew only very vaguely about the end of the of the uh, Pacific War, right. and how japan you know I knew about drop, the dropping of the atomic bombs. Mm-hmm. I didn't know any of the story about what happened before that in the summer of forty five, and in particular about the the decisions the Air Force made to try and bring about the surrender of Japan. Mm-hmm. So I just came home and I was just like, you know what, I have to learn about this. This is just so interesting. And that just started this process, which um, was one of the most interesting research processes because I'm not someone, I've written a little bit about the military and I mm-hmm. read a lot about the military and about military history because it's an interest of mine, but I'd never dug into a particular military campaign at that length before. And, you know, when I, the high, the high, Uh, point of the entire enterprise was when I flew down to Maxwell Air Force Base with the chief of staff of the Air Force, uh, General Brown, um, and met with all of these generals, these historians at Maxwell. And it was just like, it was like a window on a world that I knew nothing about. And it was fascinating, like so fascinating. And getting an appreciation of the intellectual culture of the military was something that I knew nothing about. and that was when I was hooked. I was like, you know what? This is like, I'm just going to, I'm writing this story. There's nothing stopping me now. Like I'm in, I mean, you know, you, I, and it was like, so that's, that was just, so that was, it starts with this kind of, I happened to be in Tokyo I, on a Sunday morning, I get in a taxi and I go to this little museum and it just sets me in
0: motion that That is so fascinating because i I was assuming that was the way the process worked and the, and the only reason that I'm saying that is and not because I want to give myself a pat on the back, because you see things i think just as a as a um, as a human of interest or interesting things you see things and you're like, man, I really would love to go down the rabbit hole on this subject, but mm-hmm. <clears throat> for my circumstance it 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 happens kind of in um I'll see something and then I'll write it and, you know, put it in my notes or I'll put it in my iPad. And then I'll do research maybe over the course of a couple of years just because I'm interested in it, right? And I'm just trying to find a, a general, uh, general knowledge base in it. But what I found was the last, uh, or at least in this book, was the military history and the, the military icons specifically related to that, that time in history— that's always been fascinating to me. In um, several years ago, uh, uh, McNamara had a, uh, and it wasn't him necessarily, but there's a documentary called "The Fog of War." I don't know if you ever saw oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. One of the great. One of the great documentaries. Yeah. Right. It, and he had said something that stuck with me for the last 15 years, I think, because I think I saw it in 2005 or 2004, whenever it came out. I went to some. Uh, You know, uh, theater in Seattle and watch the fog of war. And he had said, I know know exactly what you're going to say, but go ahead. Okay. uh, It is, we knew we would be prosecuted for war crimes (laughs) if we didn't win. And that has stuck with me for 15 years. I, I probably couldn't tell you the rest of the documentary, but I th- found it fascinating because I was recalling this information from the documentary that I'd seen 15 years ago in your book. And uh, tying those two things together uh, with McNamara, and I think there's, a, there's, there's, there's so many fascinating things about World War II. My, my, my grandfather was a radio guy on a B-24 Liberator and out of the Aleutian Islands. So I, I, I can't imagine what it was like for you to go down and, and do the research because how much doesn't make the book that you're fascinated by, but it just doesn't quite fit, that you, you want it to? I, I, how often do you find you're saying, your thing? Your, I guess the question is, how often do you find your, yourself in the situation where I want this to be in the book? but it just doesn't quite fit. So I got to pull it out. And But it's still a, a substantial amount of work and it's really interesting. It just doesn't quite fit.
1: Lots. I mean, there's several things. I wanted this to be, you know, whenever, whenever you tackle the Second World War, you can go on forever. You can do it. <laughs> right, right. There's 10 <laughs> volumes you can do. Yeah. And I wanted yeah. to tell... So I, I very consciously had to limit myself. I, was, I wanted to tell the story of the air campaign of the summer of 1945 over right. Japan. Got it. About why, how did we come to a situation where Curtis LeMay um, had his super fortresses firebombing with napalm, 66 Japanese cities right. in the space of three months. Um, and I wanted, more importantly, to come to that position without judgment. Mm. So lots of people I feel like will write a history and there's a very specific point they want them, they want you to come away with one very clear uh, uh, takeaway from the, from what the story they're telling. I did not want to do that. Mm. What I, what, what, what struck me right from the beginning of this research was that I wanted, was that the, the military commanders at that phase in the war were faced with a series of impossible decisions right there was no good way out to end the war mm-hmm. right so you were choosing between this complicated morally like overwhelming like insanely hard choice right. or this complicated insanely hard choice and you didn't have any other choices right, right. i wanted a notion of impossible choice so those are my constraints. I don't want to... I'm not making an argument for one person over another. And two, I I just want to explain the impossibility of the U.S. U.S. military's position when it came with, with respect to Japan in the summer of 45. So that meant, I mean, would I have loved to do way more on the air war in Europe? Um, yeah. I mean, because it's totally... I mean it's so fascinating on so many levels. Like I would have loved to have, I could have written in an entire book just about this one thing, which I got overwhelmed by over and over again, which was, there's a comment that uh, Bomber Harris, that the that the the head of the British, the RAF Bomber Command made. Yeah. He talks about how much harder, he was like, if you're a naval commander, you, you plan one great campaign, maybe a war. If you're an army commander, you have, you know, maybe it's once every two, three, or month, or two, three weeks that you do something of consequence. He's like, if you're an Air Force, commander, If you're an Air Force commander, you're planning something every day, and the physical stress of that is right. what I couldn't get over. These guys are going out; they are flying for hours in these death traps. I mean, these planes—yeah, planes in the Second World War—are like they're like nuts. Yes. They're like, yeah. I mean, are you kidding me? Like you're freezing cold. You're You're frostbitten. You're somebody's fired. Bullets are whizzing over your head. I mean, it's just crazy what we ask these people to do. And then you you fly. I mean, if you're lucky, you you come home, you grab some sleep, and then you go up the next day. Like it's just that I could not get over the stress we put these people through. Like every, maybe not every day, but every other day. Like we ask people to do things that. You mean nine out of if you tried that today with, with, I mean are you kidding me no. with like a if I took a 19 a, a year old who spent his entire life playing video games, yeah, and I said, Okay, we're gonna we're gonna put you through the guy would he would fold after you know. <laughs> so that part, I was I would love have loved just to write to try and capture that. But you know, so I I write about that in a couple of, you know, for in the audio book for 20 minutes, maybe I took 10 minutes, I talk about it. But I mean, I could have read okay. a whole book on I I still can't get over like that fact, like what we put those those guys through. It's just, it, it doesn't, I can't wrap my mind around it.
0: I I can't either. I've I've it's a reference point for a lot of uh veterans and guys that have actually gone to war. World War II has always right. been kind of a reference point, multiple different levels, which is uh at least I'm not flying several thousand feet in the air in a rattletrap pop can being shot at, you know, uh, and, it, it, you know, getting, you know, flack pushed through the side of the, the, the airplane and we're falling through the sky. My, my grandfather flew out of the Aleutians and the, the, the ocean, I was just up there, I was just in the Alaskan mm-hmm. Peninsula, and the, the ocean is black and it's cold. Just looking down, flying from these, you know, B twenty four Liberators that are really thin and cold, Then you've got to fly for hours in order to drop your bombs and then come back. This the, the psychological makeup of what's happening in the brain. I can't I can't stop thinking about that when I'm in these situations and looking at this and what people have had to go through. And the aviation piece of this has been incredible for me because. It's a great touch point because it's like, oh, well, at least I'm not up here in this, you know, B-29 or whatever it is, or 24. And I'm not being shot out of the, you know, the the dark, cold ocean. (laughs) And then it puts everything in perspective. did Did you know your grandfather? I did. I knew him really well. He's one of my really, he was probably one of the most prominent figures in my life. How? So what did he say about that experience? He didn't say a lot. He barely talked about it. He had a uh, he had a bronze star with a, a V device on his keychain. Um he had a distinguished flying cross. Uh like he had he'd flown multiple missions. And um mm-hmm. he, he didn't say a lot about it. Uh he didn't like to fly after that. So oh, my. he drove a lot. <laughs> I, can <laughs> right? yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, he drove a lot. Uh but do you he, think Go ahead. Do you think he didn't want to? Why didn't he want to
1: talk about it? Because he didn't want to think about it. Mm-hmm. He didn't want you to know how
0: hard it was. What What do you think his reasons were? I think it's the same reason why I don't talk about Iraq with my kids. Is uh that's a different person. Uh, it's you know you're forced into situations where you have to do things that you're maybe not necessarily wanting to to think about on a regular cadence, and you in you want to shelter your kids and your grandkids from probably uh, uh, that section of your mm. life. I mean, there are sections of Iraq that truly uh, I, I don't, I I forget about. Like I, I've forgotten about years of my life, which is interesting. Uh, but I think mm. with high stress, high anxiety, and trauma, I think that happens a lot. I would imagine. I, I'm just, I'm just assuming. I think it's always there. It, like it runs in, in the background of your mind, like software, right? It's, it's just running. And you don't talk about it. You talk about it with your friends, your, your other veteran, you know, friends that have gone through similar experiences and you make jokes about it. But I don't talk about it with my family. I, I try not to at yeah. least. I really, I'm very yeah. conscious of it. I try not to. Cause the other thing is I don't want to ask. I don't want to, um, I don't want to go through a, a Q&A session with my children because they don't, have the, um, we'll call it the the, the social norms to, <laughs> to stay away from specific subjects. So I think it's probably the same way. Um, there's, a,
1: there's a detail, I thought of that. It's funny when you were talking. There's a detail from the initial attack on Tokyo. So they drop all of this napalm and probably 50,000, 60,000 people are burned to death. Right. And they bring the planes <clears throat> back to the Mariana's and they had to fumigate the B-29s because the smell of burning flesh was so powerful inside the plane. And I thought, as we were talking, I was like, I can, I feel very confident in saying not a single one of the pilots who flew inside those planes that smelled of, for hours on the way right. home, hours. six hours, whatever oh, it was, yeah. um, ever shared
0: that detail with them. Yeah. How could you? You couldn't. Yeah. You can't do it. I, it's just so... Uh, well, that's the thing that... Did, how many guys... Did, how many people did you get to talk to and personally do interviews with that were there? Or was it all pulled from interviews separately? Did you have in-depth conversations with people that were there? And how many?
1: No. So we're right up. So I was doing my research in 2020. So we're okay. right up against the window of... Got it. So basically, we're talking about people yeah. in their late 90s. Yeah. I thought, like, a guy, a guy. It, it, what always happens in these things is you write the book, and then all of a sudden, you hear from the guy. So right. a guy, this guy emails me yesterday. A, fr- a friend of his says, "Oh, my friend Norm wants to email you." You know, Norm's ninety eight. He's you know, right. he's one hundred percent there. You, could, I mean, it turns out to be, I couldn't you know if I'd known Norm, but I, right. I, I would have interviewed him. But what I was, what turns out that the Air Force, um. And some affiliated historians and group, veterans groups have done an amazing job in the 50s collecting oral histories. And so there was an, inc- in fact, Maxwell Air Force Base, they have an archive there where they have literally thousands of cassettes of in-depth really? oral histories done with every single military leader of consequence in the, in the air war of the Second World War. So it's like, you know, you're getting, I mean, it's an unbelievable resource. You just walk in there and they say, well, what do you want to hear? I mean, and they just walk over and they'll give you, you want a five-hour interview with Ira Aker, you know, who was running the 8th Air Force in World War II? Here it is. Listen, like it's insane. It's like, I mean, it's so Air Force, by the way. Yeah. I now know a little bit about the different cultures of the of the services. Of course, the Air Force has has got a set of perfectly made, no, you know, uh, 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 oral histories, which you know, all lined up with an expert archivist who just gives it to you right. I mean, it's that's what they do, the Air Force, right? They like, they they manage their technology perfectly. They do. So, um, so that I was I was I was blessed to kind of I took advantage of the the unbelievable resources that are available. I mean, there's no other. You name another American institution that has that kind of pays that kind of attention to its own history. But this is, sorry, I'm, gonna get, I'm about to Please. rant on this because yeah. i thought about this a lot. <laughs> um, I'm not someone, I'm a Canadian. I don't come from, my, my parents are pacifists. You know, I don't, I don't come from the military world at all. What I know about it is the stuff I've kind of read about in various projects I've done. Right. But my respect for these institutions has grown exponentially since I started doing um, this project, and I, I can give you ten different examples, but I'll give you just two. One is that so I go to Max, sit down with these historians at Maxwell who teach at the Air University, so they're training the new generation of officers about what the Air Force has been through over the last right. since its founding. And, and what amazed me was the degree to which the kind of openness and objectivity and Willingness to be self-critical mm. among these historians—they're not—they're not painting a rosy picture of. No, they're giving you the warts and all. Yeah, here's what we did yeah. in 1944. This was a good idea. This was not a good idea. Right. This was where right. we screwed up. This is where we succeeded. This guy was a great leader. This guy was a terrible leader. Mm-hmm. They are totally and that kind of my when I was listening to this, I was like, where else in American society are people? Where there is there that kind of intellectual freedom to really want to learn from your own history, like I, I don't know if it exists anywhere else. Everyone else is so busy covering their own ass or whatever. Right. But here are these guys, these historians. You know, these these are paid, you know, members of the faculty of the Air, air university, and they are the first people to tell you this was a mistake or this was. You know where we we learned did better the next that really that kind of uh, culture of uh, of of intellectual honesty mm. um, it's not what I expected I'll be honest with you I didn't think I I thought I'd get something else and so I came away with with um, uh, and I just felt like we could other institutions in this society could learn a lot mm. from that kind of. Of rigor and honesty
0: and thoughtfulness about about how you deal with your own history. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think I think you're right. By the way, you know, I spent uh, twenty years in combined service. I think you're right. There's a lot of um, objectivity in the military, depending, right? And, and it's and it's really has to be a it it has to be forced because you have people that need to evolve the units or the regiment or whatever it might be for mission success. So it, your lives depend on your ability to evolve your circumstance and then continue to evolve, whether it's you know your command relationship with your subordinates, uh, your technical and tactical proficiency. And if you get too hung up on tradition, then you won't be able to see through uh, you're clouded by tradition you won't be able to actually look at it objectively in order to evolve and have mission success and commanders have a, a direct representative interest in being successful because they also want to be promoted right so uh yeah. and i think yeah. it's i think that's really interesting from your perspective because you're You are you're Canadian. You're you've you you spent the majority of your life outside of that culture and community. I've heard that a lot from people where they say I I'm really they were they were surprised they were they were very surprised and 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 I used to have these conversations with uh, more Catholics than anyone where I'd say you know the the Jesuits that are teaching at Notre Dame are not necessarily the same type of Catholics that are you know. uh, walking the halls in the Vatican, right? There are different types of Catholics. <laughs> and, and you uh, you have different cultures and communities based on what type of units you came from or what you did in the military. It's a big organization. Um, and there's a lot of really, really smart people and there's a lot of not so smart people. It's fairly easy. Yeah. Like, it's really yeah. easy. Yeah. I, I think you brought that out in your book because you have this... Group and I forget exactly how you're referring to them. But you had these these group of you know data heads basically that were managing uh, managing part of the war, and then you had other commanders that were more interested in hey, let's just beans and bullets. Let's get guys up in the air. Let's make sure that they're not scared. Let's make sure that they can continue to do what they need to do because that was their job. They needed to do this. Mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating that you have multiple forms of psychology that have to coalesce around an object in order to, to, to have success. It's a tragic, like, and in, in, I think you bring it in a, in a really um, objective way, which is, this is these are tragic, tragic decisions. You brought it up earlier. You have mm-hmm. a horrible decision on your left. You have a horrible decision on your right. You you have all these competing interests and emotions that are flooding in. And how do you make those decisions at the top level? Because we're dealing with human life from one side, which is the enemy, and then our side from 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 you know, the, the the American service member circumstance. It is such a pressure cooker. I can't imagine the 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 brain of the individual that's been in that cycle for X amount of time doing lots of repetition did you find yourself fixated on certain individuals and their decision making that you wanted to really drill down on and if so who were the most fascinating people that you've you uncovered yeah. through that course
1: well it begins you know the title of the book the bomber mafia refers yeah. to this group of of in retrospect incredibly innovative thinkers At Maxwell in the 30s, who are, they're looking at the technological revolution that's going on with Mm -hmm. aviation, um, and particularly the rise of the bomber. um, And they're saying, this is going to revolutionize the way we make war. Um, And that my what was fascinating to me about that is that um, it's such a kind of contemporary story, because they're in exactly the same position as, you know, the internet pioneers were in the nineties or the you know the guys at Google were in two thousand and two or I mean I could go on like they're they're seeing something happen in um, a totally new technology and they're wondering how is it going to disrupt our world? Mm -hmm. And they're they're saying unless we work it out, A, we're gonna lose the next war, or B, we're gonna fight the next war in a way that is going to make us profoundly unhappy. Um, and they're they're shaped by the first the, the first world war is such a nightmare, and um, so many people die senselessly. Right. That these guys, the bomber mafia, this group in Alabama, they're like, you know what? We can't re- we can't repeat that. You can't have once a generation a war in which you basically send all your young men to die for no good reason right. in the most sort of senseless slaughter. So they think the bomber is the way out of that problem, mm. and I loved, you know, they're they're half right and half wrong. They're they, they're fifty years early, right. you know. Turns out the way that avi- military aviation looks today it conforms a lot to their their image back in the '30s. But they bring that vision of the Second World War, and I that story to me, that's the heart of the book. Is these dreamers led by this guy Haywood Hansel, is the one I really fashioned yeah. on he is this incredible character. He's like a, he's like out of a Hollywood movie. I mean, he's this kind of romantic handsome. There's a, there's so many, my two favorite Haywood Hensel stories are. He's a workaholic. Like all these guys are, they are yeah. never home, right. never home. So he's visiting his wife and he hears a noise. He's to their young, they're a young couple. He's at dinner. He hears a noise. His wife says, what's that noise? She that's your son, <laughs> frying. <laughs> he's never, he has no idea. Um, so he's like, um, the other Heywood Hansel story, he was leading a <coughs> bomber mission um, uh, over Europe in the 43, I think. A, uh, and he's flying back. And, you know, they've been beaten up and shot out a million ways. And there's all these, you know, as you know, these it's, it's the kids in the back of the plane, they're kids. They're yeah. 18 years old, right? Whatever yeah. they are, 19. He sings Broadway tunes, oh yeah, over the internet, um and you understand why, like he's yeah. older, more mature, he's trying to they've just been traumatized, yeah, and he's trying to bring some degree of normalcy back to them, and so he's he's piloting this ship, this battered ship home, right, and he's singing you know the i mean, I just found that so just gave me a window into the humanity of these people, right, right. they're like. He understands he's got these people who are they're just off the farm and they've been yeah. thrown into this crazy conflict, and he so he's singing them a song to calm their nerves on the way home. Like so, that's the. But at the same time, he has this. He is determined. They develop a military doctrine which is um, about making the bomber the centerpiece of our attack on the first the Germans and then the Japanese. Right, and nobody in the army. Uh, believes in this doctrine. And there's a wonderful line from one of the members of the bomber mafia. He's like, if they knew what we were doing down in Alabama, they would fire us all. Like, they're they're basically telling the rest of the army, like, am I allowed to swear in this podcast? Mm -hmm. They're basically telling the rest of the army, go fuck yourself. Like, everything (laughs) you're doing is nonsense. You guys are living. They, They move themselves down to Maxwell because they're at an Air Force base in Virginia. And they're trying to they're all aviators they're right. trying to reinvent warfare, and they are forced to undergo to do training with cavalry training with horses and they're yeah. like are you are you fucking kidding me We're reinventing war and you're making me you're t- you're making me go and like scrub out the <laughs> the stables like their level of frustration with the army is like sky high and they're like the only way we can get anything done is if we go as far away yeah. from army headquarters as possible. So they take themselves to Montgomery, Montgomery, Alabama in 1935, with all due respect to Montgomery. Yeah. All due respect. It is the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. You could not be further from where anything is happening. I feel like finally we're safe. No one is messing with us. In, no one's visiting us in Montgomery. We can do whatever we want. We can teach whatever we want to whoever comes down here and we can fly whenever we want, whatever we want, right? It's, it's kind of genius. And the, the, the army is so disorganized oh, yeah. in a beautiful way. The beautiful disorganization of the army. If you go, if you find yourself in a
0: little corner of the world, you can actually, you probably know this, I you can f- go off into a corner of the world, you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. I'm very familiar with that. It's out of sight, out of mind. I'm super familiar <laughs> with it. Like I practiced I practiced that basically for the last 10 years of my career, which is nobody knows I'm here. So uh-huh. nobody can mess with me. <laughs> I'm gonna just do whatever it is that I do. It's great. It's a, it's a once you figure that out, and if you yeah. figure that out early enough, and it's so funny because now that you say that. I've had such a personal history with that because we, uh, we moved this unit out of Virginia to like the middle of Colorado for the same thing, for the same thing. Because we we're like, you have all a bunch of people that are, uh, they're interested in what's going on. So they'll stop in and say hi. And they'll, but once you get a little bit further out and you make it more difficult, then you can yeah. kind of have your own thing. You can go, okay, this is the way I'm going to build it. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, I, 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 Not to get too far off track. I think it's, so interesting to me that you had a group of guys in that, that, that level of history. I thought a couple of things in here that I thought that were fascinating, which I wanted to do way more research on, which is the football, like the, the site. And so yes. <clears throat> I was left short. Not, not, I'm not saying anything negative about the book. I'd, I'm fascinated by this because it's the first time that I've really got a, even the information that you put in the book about, about the site uh, because That's I've wondered this, and I haven't really had the right opportunity to think about it in the right circumstance with the right information. So it's fascinating to me the the development the, the development of the site, uh, how much it cost, which was like I insane. didn't <laughs> like, <insane. laughs> it blew me away. So uh, tell me more about like the history yeah. and origin of this, because like I was blown away. I was I was completely caught flat footed by that fact.
1: Yeah. So. You know, the the central physics problem that all these aviators are facing in the 1930s is they've created this idea of the bomber. Yeah. That We can can create a a really, really, really large plane that can fly really, really high and really, really fast. And it means it's probably, they think they're wrong, but at the time they think it's going to be too big and fast for any fighter to mess with it. And it's going to be flying so high that the fighter is not gonna be able to go up that high and touch it. Mm -hmm. So basically it's an unstoppable force. So we have a fleet of these bombers, they'll fly super high and fast over our enemy um, and they will drop bombs and disable, You know, without having to fight on the ground, without doing anything else, we can just drop bombs and disable the enemy that way. But their problem is they can't figure out how to drop the bomb with any accuracy. If you are 25,000 feet in the sky and you're flying 300 miles an hour, and the winds are blowing and the temp- air temperature is changing. And it's an impossible physics problem. Right. How? I mean, you know, the guy, who, when I was interviewing this one historian about this, he gave the example of, <clears throat> you ever been, and we've all, as kids, been, you're in a car with your buddies, you're drinking beer, you're driving down a road at 30 miles an hour, let's say, maybe 40. Right. And you want to throw your garbage, you throw your beer can out the window into a garbage can, right? Can you hit the garbage can? No, you can't. You think you can, but it's a physics problem. There's no way. It's right. like you can't account for all the different, the garbage can's stationary. You're going 40 miles an hour. The wind's blowing. You have to time it absolutely perfectly. You can do that 50 times and you will maybe put the beer can in the garbage can once, it, it yeah. right? Well, now, the, if you're dropping a bomb from 25,000 feet, you have made that problem a hundred times worse, and so finally, this crazy inventor called Carl Norden says, "I think I can solve the problem," and he creates basically an analog computer, which is called football. And it's it you know it's probably you can buy them on eBay now. They're and it's called the Norden Bomb Site. They're like a you know maybe a foot square or eighteen right. inches square, and they the army spends the only thing the army spends more on in the second world war than developing this bomb site are is uh the atomic bombs the b29 bomber and penicillin that's it this is number 4 on yeah. the it's like they spend in today's equivalent of billions of dollars cuz they think it is they think it's the holy grail they think that oh if we can the Germans can't drop bombs with any accuracy. The Brits can't drop bombs with any accuracy. The Japanese can't drop bombs with any accuracy. But if we have this analog computer, we can, and that means we can do whatever we want, right? Right. And that 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 the bomber mafia gets obsessed with this dream, and they communicate their enthusiasm to the army brass. And there's a period of the war where, if you you know if you sat down with the leaders of the Second World War in 1943, all the stuff was. Totally top secret. They thought this was going to be the difference in the war. That, oh, so we can then, we can fly over Berlin and we can, we can take out, you know, the Reichstag, yeah. two power plants yeah. and some bridges, leave everything else untouched. And they're, they're, everything they do is going to grind to a halt. We can fly over, you know, Hamburg and take out the, you know, the aircraft factory and they can't, or the tank factory and they can't make any more tanks. Right. It's over. Right. We don't have to worry about anything else. That's what that was the dream. Um, and it's all based on this notion that this analog computer um can can solve the physics problem. The problem is, of course, it can't. I mean, it can if you're doing they do these test runs in Utah. and you know, so so typical army, by the way. It's like, let's go to the part of the world that is the least like stuff. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> The, the enemy we're fighting. There was, <laughs> let's go to Utah, which is where their, their test grounds were, right? Yeah. So yeah. where the sky is always blue, where the temperature, it never rains, it never storms. It's like, and where the it's perfectly flat desert. and Let's see whether it works under those circumstances. Turns out it does, right? But then you take it to Europe and there's fog everywhere and there's clouds and there's hills and there's, you know, fighter jets coming at you and it's it's 10 below and whatever, all of a sudden it doesn't work. Um, So it's that kind of, the failure of that technology is one of the, it's a big part of the story in the Barra Mafia. It's like that starts to create this ever uh, more complex set of choices for military leadership. They had this, they thought they had this really clean, easy way to finish off the war and they don't. And the question is, and is this this is this is the thing that I got obsessed with is it's such a, the, an incredibly important model for decision making in any number of realms. What do you do when your number one option has been taken off the table? When the yeah. easy, the easy way to win no longer works, right? You know, in football, if you have a a passing attack and you go and it's pouring rain and a muddy field and you can't throw the ball anymore, okay, now what do you do? Mm-hmm. right it's that it's that problem right and if you watch football games some coaches can solve that problem and some don't some can't You're just like i don't know what to do i can't we're a passing team right but other coaches are like okay we're not a passing team anymore right <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. like that's that's the thing and it's like so you have this the story in the Mafia is there was a guy in the air force curtis LeMay, who was that guy who was like okay it doesn't work i can yeah. I, i'll take you to the next best option, which sucks by the way. Yeah. But I don't have a no one has the better idea. Um that that little piece is like that's what a great, that's what a great leader in any context can do is you take away their number one option and they can solve the problem.
0: Uh, That that to me, last night I, I I had to pause and think about this because You've invested, you know, you you put yourself into the circumstance where you've invested Mm -hmm. all the time, all the money, all the emotion into this option that is just not an option. And Mm -hmm. the emotional and psychological or the, you know, the, the psychological and physical state of that person that is trying to make those decisions. So we were referring to it earlier, the high pressure, high stakes, emotional decision. And I found myself thinking about this where, you know, you're, that's, that's it's a, it's a, it's a, a very American, uh, and it might not just be American, but I, I was thinking about it in the context of America, which is it's a very American way to think about trying to hack the system. Right, which is, you can't hack it. It it it's going. It it's a, it's a shit sandwich. <laughs> you know, it, it is what it is. You're not going to be able to hack it. You're just going to have to do really horrible shit because it's war and it's World War Two and there's no other option. But man, I commend those guys for trying. Like I really do. Like I I think of them as it's so. Um, yeah I have so much admiration for those people because man, if we could have hacked it how how incredible would that have been if we could really could have dropped bombs and pickle barrels from twenty five thousand feet like you guys did it you 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 know you broke the code so to speak, but I've seen even in my military career when there's typically a hack that means it doesn't work we uh you know I started thinking about it in uh uh um, from my my experience where we had these, we, we were trying to defeat IEDs, right? And so you had guys mm-hmm. that were coming out and building these big arms that would be in front of the vehicles that were supposed to like trigger the IED before you drove over it. Like that took them about five minutes to figure that out before they could just reset their IEDs to trigger closer to the vehicles. But, mm-hmm. it, or they had, you know, a uh, 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 signal blocking, uh, so you could, you could drive around with the, with a frequency blocker so they mm-hmm. couldn't trigger it. And then they just manually triggered it. So it, it's so interesting to me that these guys, the American mentality, and I don't, I don't necessarily know if it's just in specifically American, but that hack, like we're looking for the hack. We want the hack, mm-hmm. but this is going to suck. And I can't imagine being in, in that, in that psychological grinder Because it's leadership, it's management, it's high pressure, high stakes. Because I can't imagine being in that that psychology of the person that thinks theirs is a zero-sum game. If we don't win, what will happen? And Mm -hmm. did you find yourself thinking about their mental state just at that level and why they were making some of the decisions they were making them? And did you find people that were on a cycle of good decision-making or on a cycle of bad decision-making? Did you find things that you, you're like really amplifying in thinking about like, this is a really bad, bad, bad decision, but they made it and they all agreed to. And I think you alluded to a couple in the book, but I wanted to, I wanted to ask you that question.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> well, there really, there's two examples. One is uh, the bomber mafia become convinced Bob Murphy had this other uh, this idea. This uh, it was uh, to use your, uh, It was uh, it was their hack. They said, yeah. "You know, if you can identify a critical industry that the enemy is totally dependent on, mm-hmm. you just take out that little node in the network. The whole network will crumble." Right. And they identified right. their brilliant idea was ball bearings. Oh. That ball bearings, everything that moves, every wheel. Every, you know, anything that any any mechanical moving part needs ball bearings to work. Right. So if right. we, if the Nazis can't make ball bearings, they can't make tanks, planes, jeeps, guns, you know, it's all got ball bearings. And it turns out, and then they said, oh, they're making all their ball bearings in one town called Schweinfurt in Bavaria. And if we just take out Schweinfurt, we win, right? They don't have any ball bearings. Now, there's so many problems with this. <laughs> So many problems with this. Among them, the Germans don't just make their ball bearings in Schweinfurt. Right. Uh, They can import them. They have ton in reserve. I mean, I can go on. But the point is, the bomber Mafia, in this way that you've just described, they convince themselves, this is the simple hack to the whole war. We'll just take out Schweinfurt. And so uh, the two characters who are the center of my story, um, Haywood Hansel, who's the the bomber Mafia guy, and Curtis LeMay, who is the skeptic. Yep are both involved with the raid on Schweinfurt. And it goes south in a, as you can imagine, it goes south 10 different ways. Terrible losses. They don't end up wiping out the ball bearing factories. And LeMay is charged with a key role in the Schweinfurt raid. And this story, which is so, uh, so LeMay leads one of the attacks on Schweinfurt. And uh, they suffer. I mean, he loses some insane percentage of his, of his planes, and he it, he's just opposed to it from the beginning, and after it's over, he's like, this is a complete fuck-up that you forced yeah. me to do, like, and he's angry about it. I talked to this guy who visited LeMay in retirement, and this is in the 90s, or the 80s, goes to LeMay's house in, in Southern California. He walks in this house, and in the foyer, you, know, you walk in, open the front door, Right in front, what is on the wall, a huge photograph, the strike photo from the Schweinfurt raid. So in this guy's house, so LeMay goes on to be one of the most important aviators, yeah. military leaders of the 20th century. He, You name it, he did it. He ran strategic air command. He was the uh, chief of staff of the Air Force. He was involved in a million things. He was a key player in the Cold War. He must have met every single major military and political figure in the 20th century, Right. This guy could put a hundred photographs in the most honored place in his wall. He was involved in one success after another. He ran the Berlin Airlift. I could go on. What does he choose to put on in the place of honor in his house? A photograph of the biggest fuck up he was involved in, right? Because he can't get over it. He's still angry about it. He carries 50 years later, he is still pissed off that he had to be... Take part in this foolish raid that left a lot of his men dead. Right? And he he doesn't want to leave it behind. He does he wants to remind everyone who comes to visit him that his own people forced him to do this thing that he felt was completely stupid and wasteful. Like that, I mean, I still can't wrap my mind around that. like that. What it just tells you so much about about, I mean. Good and bad, but mostly good. Actually, I Mm -hmm. like the idea. These guys properly are obsessed with, he was obsessed with figuring out the right way to fight this war. And he felt that was wrong. And he was not going to let go of it even when he's in retirement in Newport Beach in 1990. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. And he wants, every, he wants every FedEx delivery guy, every mailman, <laughs> every guy coming to fix his dishwasher to look at that thing and say, hey, General, what's that? That's what he wants, right? He wants yeah. them to say, why is that on your wall? Because he wants to tell a story. Oh, that was a fuck up I was involved in 50 years ago. Right? Like these guys... Can't let it go. It's just amazing. So amazing.
0: That, that's incredible. I, I, I remember that last night when I, was, when I was listening to it. I remember that. And I thought about this because the guys that uh, I, I, was, uh, I was interviewing, uh, uh, Michael Jordan's former coach. And uh-huh. he was talking about how Michael Jordan was obsessed with his failures. He wasn't obsessed with his success he yeah. was obsessed with what he had done wrong yeah. because that's how he could evolve as a as an athlete mm-hmm. and so when i when i listened to that last night i was like it's it's same the same, same thing he's obsessed with his failures in order to try to get something yeah. right and he has to have a reminder he's like i don't want to know what i've done right i need to know what i've done wrong so that is yeah. how I improve my circumstance. And that, that's instantly what I thought. It was like, this is, this is the same type of character that Michael Jordan was as an athlete, as this guy was a commander, he's obsessed with failure to the point where he has to identify that and then remind himself of it on a daily cadence. And I was, <laughs> that's exactly what I thought of. was like, that is obsessed you know, with you know, failure.
1: You know what that reminds me? Of? You know, on a the of Jordan, did you ever listen to Jordan's... Um, Hall of Fame acceptance speech? No. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. On this, oh, you have to listen. Okay. To this. So, this is exactly what we're talking about. So, he gets up. He's been admitted to the Basketball Hall of Fame, the greatest basketball player of his generation. Right. Ends up. And you know, those, you know what those speeches are like. I'd oh, like yeah. to thank Bill Jackson and Scott and right. Pittman, my high school coach. It's not what he does. What he does is he goes through and he airs every single grievance. <laughs> he's like, you know, you didn't believe in me here, and blah, 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 blah. he's like, it's crazy thing. <laughs> it goes on and on and on and on and on. He's angry. He's like, pissed off. It's like, <laughs> but it's like it's why he was so good. It's the same thing, right? Yeah. It's like he's like, you know, he is laser focused on all of the imperfections. In his career, and one minute it's his imperfections, and another it's like someone else's imperfections. But that's what he's going to talk about, because that's because we got to get better, right? We got to fix this. It's just fantastic. It's the most anti. It's the most bizarre, (laughs) unexpected anti Hall of Fame speech you've ever seen.
0: (laughs) Now, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a note to write to uh, to watch this because I'm (laughs) he's just. (laughs) <laughs> I'm fascinated with these guys. Like I'm fascinated with uh, you know leadership and uh, the person's ability to make great decisions, like split decision making, complex decision making. Uh, I which leads me into to to blink because I, I really need to know. I, I I don't need to know, I guess, but I'd love to know mm. how. What was the lead up to that, and then where did you? Where did you make the decision to write that book? And can you explain kind of the genesis to it? Because Mm -hmm. that was my first introduction to you. So I I have to know. Super simple. Uh, 9-11 happens. Mm
1: -hmm. And I have, as you can see from looking at me, I am, uh, my mom's Jamaican. So Uh, if I grow my hair out, I have a serious afro. Yeah. Like a serious, I can I can have I can have a foot of Afro. So right around normally up through the nineties, my uh hair was really short. And uh the uh I grew it out right around nine eleven, seriously mm-hmm. long. And then I started getting first of all, I couldn't go airport security. I pulled a single time. I got a to. In Dubai, I got pulled into a closet and strip searched. I started getting speeding tickets like you would not believe. My whole life was transformed by the fact that I all of a sudden I grew my hair out. All of a sudden, everyone thought I was some kind of hoodlum. And it was, it, it, I got so many tickets. I like, I had to go in and defend my license at one point. It was just nuts. <laughs> well, I'm not a that bad driver. <laughs> I was like, I'd never been pulled over in security lines before. And I was like, oh, you know, it's just that. Uh, people use the length of your hair uh, as a shortcut to uh, figure out who you are, what you stand for, your level of risk. Yeah. I didn't really, you know, I think that can be very pernicious. Yeah. I also think, I don't know, In after 9-11, people were freaked out and they, anything that looked non you know unconventional was getting them right. upset. I wasn't angry about it. I was more kind of fascinated. Like, that's how human beings work. Yeah. We do right we like jump to all these and i'm i'm coding as a bad actor with my hair at you know eight inches right um, or nine inches so that just i got fascinated about that what are we doing in that moment mm-hmm. and when is it good and when is it bad and <clears throat> so that book was an attempt to kind of separate the good versions of that from the bad versions of that mm-hmm. so the true experts if you have real experience in the field in your field you're good at that. That's what expertise means. Yeah. You have shortcuts to good decisions. But if you're inexperienced, your blink judgments are terrible. And we get in a lot of trouble when we put inexperienced people in positions where they have to rely on their snap judgments. That's where you have a problem. It wasn't, it's not experienced police officers pulling me over. and right. It's not experienced airport security people yanking me out. It's people who don't know Right. They're new. Right. It's new. It's the whole world is new. They're, you know, and it's, it's, <clears throat> you, I mean, you would have a million examples of this in military command. You know, somebody who has, has real experience in combat, mm-hmm. they can make you follow them for a reason because they're making good decisions like that. Right. But the person who's fresh off the boat, that's doesn't work. Um, and I, you know, it made me, I got very interested in that book about in policing, and I've been writing about policing ever since and my big thing on policing is we have to explain to people who are not familiar with policing a how hard it is yeah it's a lot harder than it looks, mm-hmm. insanely difficult, and we need to have a lot of respect for uh, people who are still learning yeah and not put yeah. them in positions where they're over their heads, and three, we have to invest a lot more in training yeah. It, can't like when I, I mean, I'm, don't even get me started on the phrase defund the, the police, which drives me batshit. It's <laughs> yes. like you think the police aren't good enough, you don't spend less money on training them. You spend more money on training them. Like have you learned nothing from anything about any complex task? It's like do you go to a concert and then and you hear the the pianist and the pianist is making a lot of mistakes. Do you say let's defund? His training, (laughs) her training. No, you say, go back and work harder, and prepare, and get yourself a better coach. That's what you say, right? right? Yeah, it's nuts. It's like if it's truly hard as it is, we need better people, better trained. That's what you need. You got to start paying. There are lots of communities in this country. Sorry, this is a rant. Please, where there are there are people. I read this fascinating breakdown of police officers' salaries in this country. There are lots of places where police make a good living, right? Mm -hmm. There are also places where you make, you make more working for Walmart. Yeah. If you think you can get quality policing when you're paying someone $12 an hour, then, you know, you're on crack. Like, and that is the reality in many communities in this country. Like, you want good, same thing, you want good anything, pay for it. Yeah. Right? It's these, and if you want good teachers, teaching also really hard then pay for it. Like, this is not, this is not like, people act like this is some kind of incredibly complicated social problem that we can't wrap our minds around. It's not, it's not complicated and we can't wrap around. It's really easy to wrap your mind around it. You want quality? Then you, then you have to work for quality. Yeah. Well, this it's just, it, I just it, it,
0: it's, it's crazy. Bananas. Anyway. It, it is. I so I'll agree with you. It, it is crazy. because it
1: you get to expertise? I, and about appreciating what, ex- what real expertise looks like. It is it's something that takes time and has to be carefully cultivated. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, um, <clears throat> anyway, that was what well, that, that's where that book, that's how that book kind of came about.
0: Well, the interesting, and I don't know if you, you touched on it in Blink or not, and I can't remember, but at least I was thinking about it when I was reading it, which was your survivability in Vietnam, for instance, went up the longer you were there. So, yeah. the longer you were there, if you were on your second or yeah. third tour, your actual survivability went up, and so you're split decision making, complex problem solving because you're constantly pulling data in, right? So every patrol, every gunfight, everything that happens you're you're getting better, like at least in theory, you should be. and mm-hmm. so it, you can feel something that's wrong or off, and I used to have this conversation with guys a lot where. You put all these skills on what, what you're, you're unconsciously competent in these skills. So you go through the, the phases of competency. You slide all these things into basically unconsciously competent. And then you can get into a, a decision making where your body is reacting and doing the right thing. But you can think about the totality of this circumstance. But if you're really focused on how do you hold your rifle or your pistol in this circumstance, not what's unfolding, the actual event, you'll be sucked into this one skill. You'll be focused on the skill and not the actual environment, right? And mm-hmm. I found myself how, reading this. How long? What's that? How long did it take you to get to that point? I don't know if I ever felt like, uh, I, I felt more comfortable in combat circumstances Uh Probably after my first year in Iraq, I, I think it got to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to be really comfortable in the environment because you understood it, it, it's like swimming with sharks. Um, mm-hmm. If if the first time you get out of the cage and you start to experience, I would imagine I've never swum, I've never had the opportunity, but I've talked to a lot of guys that have done it. You're really apprehensive. You're really stressed out. The animals can associate you with that. You're, the first time you get out of the cage and you're in the water with, I would imagine, you know, like a great white or a tiger shark, it's stressful. But then mm-hmm. after repetition in time, you start to realize, okay, this is swimming means this, this means this. Combat is the same way. You know, mm-hmm. it, it is very, very similar to that uh, because you can start to feel uh, the atmosphere change. And things happen at such a high speed, to your point, you don't really have a lot of time to think about what is happening in the circumstance because bullets are moving really fast, uh, faster than yeah. the mind can actually comprehend. But you can. But those bullets have humans associated with them. So you can understand human behavior and understand tactical environment. You can't comprehend the speed of a bullet. Um, so you have to look at the entire picture of of, of uh, the tactical circumstance, all that data has to come in. And then you have to start making decisions. And a lot of this is, it's, uh, I, I, I wouldn't say a lot. I, I shouldn't say, there's a lot of it that is unconsciously competent. And then you have to do that with a group of people. So the most senior person typically will be making the decisions because they will have more experience. They will be the person that will be, you know leading the, the more junior aspects of the team through the combat environment, but I found this fascinating uh and I found myself thinking about this so much uh from from that perspective while I was reading the book um, even though you're identifying different uh, different scenarios I just felt I, <laughs> I found that the, the complex problem solving and split decision making of people that are reacting in like really high stress, uh, in, uh, high stress, high consequence environments. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if there's not a question there. I just, I'm really fascinated by that book. And I think that yeah. how long were you like, how long were you working on it? Uh, what was left out that you wish you would have put in? Is there, you know, is there a second version coming out? Like, Tell me, kind of unpack uh, more for me on this.
1: Yeah, I, I don't remember. so long ago. <laughs> Sorry. <was> <laughs> dis, no, no. I was a little bit disappointed. I think a lot of people didn't understand the argument I was making. A lot of people thought I was saying you should always go with your gut. Was oh, just right. Like, so not what I was saying at right. all. Like, um, they didn't understand. I would, if I was doing it again, I would spend a lot more time talking about the pathway to expertise. Mm. So when I asked you that question about how long, um, that's what's interesting to me now. And, you know, the early, like, for example, what was your
0: first month like? Yeah, it was was insane. It was was not comprehensible. Everything is chaotic. Everything is moving so fast. That's the problem is that, and it's not the problem things start to slow down. They feel like things are slowing down. When Mm -hmm. you first are introduced to it, it's so fast, you can't comprehend it. And then as you get repetition, things start to slow down and you can make decisions. So Mm -hmm. you feel the same, like your anxiety, your stress. Typically it's managed a little bit uh, more appropriately, but it almost feels like things still slow down for you. That's the way, that's literally the way that it feels. This is the way basketball players describe mm. the game as they learn it, but um, but
1: that idea, the number, what you know, the so there is this learning curve you have to go through before you can get to a level of, I hate to use the word about the word comfort in yeah. respect to, to combat, but you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about, where you feel like you're in at least in command in of a certain sense of your situation, but the number of people who are willing to go through that learning process is small. Mm. It's too small, right? Most of us don't. It's, it's too hard to put yourself through that first month or two months or three months for most people. And I think one of the challenges we have as a society is how can we increase the number of people who are willing to go through that level of discomfort? I don't right. mean necessarily with respect just to combat. No. This is true yeah. of a million yeah. things. Before I, I was on talking to you, I was interviewing this guy, works at IBM. And he was talking about, uh, he used to work at this company called Red Hat. And he was talking about a, a, the style of management that yeah. they used at a really, really innovation focused software company. Mm-hmm. And he's like, it, when he got this, funny, because the words he used to describe what happened when he first got there were exactly the same as the words you just used to describe your first couple months in combat. He was like, it seemed chaotic. It seemed like everything was moving really, really fast. And his first thought was, he was brought in in a leadership position. He said, my first thought was, I got to clean this place up. Yeah. And then he realized, oh, no, no. They're trying to teach me something right. about how to handle a really complex environment. And what will seem like chaos and madness now will one day seem like the only way we can innovate, the only way we can deal with a, with an incredibly fast-moving, complicated universe. It's funny. So it's like, he, and he had to be someone who could go through the... Also funny, he said it took him a year before he got comfortable, same language you used. But he's like, how many people would have been willing to feel really, really uncomfortable and weird and overwhelmed for a year before they got to that? And he's like, I don't know, but it's not enough. Like, oh, most people yeah. just either they drop out or they do the wrong thing. They impose the old top-down you yeah. know, rigid model and they destroy the very thing that they're trying to manage. Mm.
2: Right.
1: So it's like we need to figure out ways to get people comfortable with that uncomfortableness, and we were talking with this guy today about, if you were to redesign high school and college education, yeah. to get kids more comfortable with uncomfortableness, what would it look like? And the yeah. answer is it would look nothing like the way it looks now, yeah, right? It's like just a simple thing. It's like so much of what we do in the real world is done in teams, almost mm-hmm. nothing of what we do in. Education is done in teams. It's crazy. Like we're, You know, so much of we do in life is we have to figure it out on our own with an right. uncertain right. goal. Everything in, in education is like, you give a kid, you say, we're well, going to do this. This is how you're going to do it. Your only job is to execute on your own. That in the real world now, that almost the number of jobs where that's what you have to do is getting smaller and smaller by the day. Yeah. Right? Just so like... It's just got to be that's what that's what interests me now is, yeah can we reconfigure our world so
0: we can better train people for this kind of expertise and that's so that is so interesting because uh, I have guys I, I have like a transition program for military guys that come in and uh, they might or might not have a four-year degree. Most of the time, it's it's completely irrelevant because I, I don't care if you have a political science degree or or a liberal arts degree or whatever. It, it's, it's somewhat irrelevant to what's happening. You know, can you comprehend information? But really what I tell guys is, can you lead a team? I need you to be able to manage and push things across the line in a very organized fashion. So I always tell guys, go get a PMP course, know how to do agile scrum. So know how to run a team. And push things through a process in an organized way, most of the time it's based on the, the, the success of the overall product. It's not just this is a very linear, progressive movement pattern. It's okay, we don't necessarily know how much it's going to cost. We're going to have to explore, so we're going to have to do some exploratory research, we're going to have to budget it out, we're going to figure out manpower and all these other things, and then you're going to have to move it forward, and it might take a year. And. I've never had that experience except for in the military or running this, you know, running this company. So I started mm-hmm. the company seven years ago in my garage, and now we have 600 people working for it. And wow. Uh, and, and, and honestly, like your, your books throughout this entire time have, have really been amazing for me. But I, I think mm-hmm. you're right. I think I see people all the time that they can work individually on their laptops but that's not what i need them to do i need them to be able to collect resources and skills figure out how you can manage and lead people which is the other dying art in our in our society leadership like people think well leadership is this templated you know doctrine level uh, it's esoteric or whatever it is like no the military actually teaches leadership <laughs> there are things that you can do that can enhance like you don't have to just be born uh, you know, the president of the United States or whatever it is. I'm using a, you know, fictional term, but that that's a super interesting uh, subject, which is higher education and where, wh- wh- from your perspective, uh, you know, what can we do to change some of the people that were, not, and I, I shouldn't say change. The institutions, do you think they're doing us any favors at this point as far as processing and moving through for higher education and then, and then uh, ultimately you know, uh, getting people in the professional workplace.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm very, very funny in my podcast this season, I have a couple of episodes on higher ed and I'm pretty pessimistic about it at the moment. I mean, no part of the model works for me. So
0: (laughs) no part of the model works for you. Is that what you just said? Okay, it's good.
1: Not, it doesn't make any sense. It's like yeah. you bring kids in, you impoverish them or their parents yeah. or saddle them with unstable debt afterwards. 60 or 70% of the kids are learning things that bears no relationship to what they will need in the workforce. Right. They're, uh, we're shunting them off by themselves, for example, when they when what we need from them, to your point, is they need to be able to deal with uncertainty and to work in groups and understand what that means and either participate or lead groups. And that's, There's no, the word group is barely mentioned. Like, what's that about? Like, why uh, there, you know, uh, there's, if I was starting a university from scratch, it would look so different. You cannot graduate from my university unless you do a group activity. I don't care what it is. Don't care what it is. You must do it. You must be in a band, play on a team, you know, be part of, be put together a theater product. I don't care what it is. You must do something in a group, right? right. Otherwise you are wasting your time. I have brought together you and a whole group of other 18 year olds at great expense, put you in the same, within physical proximity of each other. And then what do I do? I give you a series of tasks where you're by yourself. That is fucking nuts. Like, <laughs> why would I go to walk? Well, then why don't I just leave you at home? right and have you just like what why do they why did i take why did i take you hundreds of miles from home to a university campus if i'm going to if i'm going to allow you to, to self isolate and sit by yourself in your dorm room and do whatever and play video games or whatever that is no you got to do something in a group or you're not getting out of here right and not and both on a uh you know, not just the academic stuff either. Like if you must do something. You have to understand that learning is about more than just reading books and sitting in lectures. Learning has got to be incorporated in the way you move through the world. Yeah. There's a physical dimension to learning. Get up and walk around and talk to people. Do something with a group of people out in the, in the world. Like that being the idea that universities are also cut off from the communities they're a part of is also crazy. It's a community. It's a learning community. And it cannot, if your learning community is in York, Pennsylvania, you better know what's going on in York, Pennsylvania, right? Go and like, you know, meet with people and work, you know, work in. I mean, I don't care what it is, but like make a connection between what you're doing in that institution and the world that institution belongs to. That's what's missing. So, of course, these kids come out and they're lost and they're depressed. And they have hundred thousand dollars in debt. Are we surprised? We just squandered four years of their life, right? It's just the whole thing is nuts. It's completely nuts. It needs to be rethought from the from the ground up.
0: Is that your next book? Is that is that what you're telling me? Is that your next book?
1: <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe. But I, I also like I could keep going on this. Yeah. But like if I was in my university, I would come to you and I would say, all right. I need you to teach a class. I don't need you to come back every year for the next 30 years. Right. I don't need you can't do that and you're not going to come back. But will you just please come and spend one week on my campus and meet with a group of students three times. Then you can go home. Right? Yeah. Just do that. And I'll do that with 50 people who are interesting. And I will give these students and I don't care what you say. I don't care if you piss them off. I don't care. Right. What, there are no consequences. I don't care if they denounce you afterwards. Want to be, <laughs> be yourself and expose them. You know, because and that's the other thing. There's too, there's so much privilege in these environments now that these kids have no connection to no. anything outside of this really really narrow world. So come in and talk to them. Teach them about something that they know nothing about and that makes them uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. let's get them comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because right now these universities are doing the opposite. They're making them comfortable with the comfortable. They just, they're just, you know, they're resorts where they're, these kids are never challenged once. Right. Right. Like what's the point? of How How can you educate anyone without challenging them? How can you do that? Right. Like I don't, I'm a big runner when, when we do, when I get together with my running groups for track workouts, the point is that it's supposed to be hard. Right. That's the right. point. Yeah. Right? That's why we show up. If it's not hard, then why we, why am I going? Why am I meeting with fifteen people on a track? Why we, why do we have stopwatches if
0: it's supposed to be easy? Like there's no point. Like it's just, I mean, it drives me crazy. It's it's the the thing I'm thinking about right now is uh, where where do you live? I live uh, in upstate New York. Yeah. So I, the thing I'm thinking about is that. You've written for the time. You've, you've 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 had articles. like You're a staff writer for the Times. Is that right, or is it the New York yeah. Magazine? Well, New I was.
1: York. I now have my own little company called Pushkin. Audio. Oh, that's right. Uh, so I work with myself now. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I was thinking about it. It's like you have got to be a social misfit among some of these guys. The The Times just did a story on us, which I'm just waiting for it just to be a dumpster fire of negativity. But uh, there yeah. has to be there has to be a. Uh, you have to be a social misfit uh, among a lot of writers that are in New York because you're saying things that are really contradictory to what 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 I hear, which is you know the university system is a fraud yeah. or whatever, right? And, uh, and and not I don't want to get into yeah. like a, a you know left or right or anything of those things because I truly just want yeah. to talk to you about your brain. But it's it. Yeah. Do you find yourself at times being controversial, even with your own? Peer group, or do you care? I mean, you just don't care. You're you're, you're really probably too successful, me. so who cares? You're probably like, I'm successful. No, you're not. I
1: I, have, I make this. No, it's not, it's not I make it a big distinction between two things. Okay. Um. And writers make this mistake all the time. Many people. Make it. You going to make a distinction between your peers and right. your audience. oh yeah. Okay. And they are not the same. So mm. you can peer please, or you can audience please. It's really hard to do both. So right. I made the decision many years ago that I was going to please my audience. And so I was going to find people who are interested in going on an intellectual journey with me, right? And I was interested in learning from them. I was interested in entertaining them, educating them, all that's who I wanted to interact with. I don't really care about my peers. like there's only first of all, if you if all you care about is your peers, how can you sell books? There's only like there's only a <laughs> hundred of them. <laughs> like yeah, that's like, true. from a business standpoint, it's yeah. ridiculous. Okay. Why would you spend all your they're not they're not buying your books? Right. They're just like cluttering up your social media. Yeah. Um, so so that was, and that orients, you know, I always tell the story, but it's the most important thing that ever happened to me as a writer. <clears throat> I'm sitting in a coffee shop. Forgive me if you've heard this story before, but it's the most important experience I've ever had. Sitting in a coffee shop in a fancy neighborhood in Houston, River Oaks. Woman runs, drives up in a Range Rover. Full-on River Oaks society matron, right? Yep. Pearls, hair, the whole thing. Yep. Comes in, sees me, comes over to me, says, are you Malcolm Gladwell? Yes, she says... I have listened to or read everything you've ever done, and I disagree with everything you've ever said. What <laughs> just walked off? I, like, I loved that. I love that. I like, that is why I do what I do. Because she wasn't being hostile; she was saying the reason I like you is I want to be challenged. Right? Said, I live in River My 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 world is this big. I yeah. live in a bubble of whatever. You just you know what the bubble looks like. Yeah. She's like, I don't want to live in that bubble. I want to, I want to, I'm curious. I want to find out about the world. You're someone who helps me be curious about the world. I don't agree with you, but it's, I find it interesting. That's what she was saying. And I was saying, I love that. I don't want, I'm trying to convert people to my cause. I want to get a relationship with an audience where we just explore cool stuff together. Yeah. And let me know what you think. And I, that makes me smarter and I'll do something. And I don't like that idea that that uh, things that you create are living, I love this phrase, living documents. You're creating a living document that people are supposed to respond to, react to, learn from, teach you about. That's what I'm doing. And that woman got it. I love her. And she, I like of because I realized, oh, you know, once I understand that there are people out there like that, who that's their relationship to me, that's so liberating. So liberating. I disagree with everything you've ever said and I read everything you've ever
0: read. Fantastic, fantastic. I love it. I I, I do, I love it. Like, I, you know, there's only, the stuff that you're publishing, one, I, I think you're, uh, I've got to subscribe to your podcast, which is called what? Revisionist History. There we go. Uh, which is, yeah. you know, it's a shameless pug for your podcast, but I think that it's good because... You know, you're one of the most fascinating people as far as like we've, I've had on the show. I love your books. Uh, and it's not necessarily if I agree or disagree. I just like the information that you're putting out because it gets... I'll find myself in a lot uh, with, with your material is I'll find myself thinking about different subjects and not that I'm distracted. I'm saying, you'll push me into different subjects because I'm fascinated by a paragraph or something that you put out. And then that'll launch me down another type of research that I, that I, I'm I'm looking into, or I want to, or I'm interested in. I've heard you on other podcasts. You're absolutely fascinating. I think, uh, you know, your your last book that's that you just released. Uh, when did you release that? April. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. So, bomb mafia, out. and I also. Heard, mafia. You're doing. Are you are you doing a tour? So are you going to do live events?
1: Uh, well, you know, that world is just opening up again. So, yeah. uh, we're trying to figure that out now, but, um, uh, I would, I would, you know, I hope to, um, yeah. uh, but, um, uh, the, uh, uh, yeah, we're I'm now, I'm now to the next thing. So it's sort of complicated. Uh-huh. I always have a bunch of things in the air, but, um, I would love to, I'm going to do, um, I'm actually speaking at a, at a, a an air force thing. Um, uh, later on in the fall, but there' there'll be a bunch of there'll be
0: some opportunities to get out in the world but uh can can you uh, tell me what the next book's gonna be like, or does everybody ask you that question?
1: no, uh, the next book is um another audio book like the like the Baro mafia is yeah. and um it's uh, although it'll be a there'll be a print version too, of course i think um but um it's i'm really it's uh, I'm returning to the subject of policing, which fascinates me and yeah. it's, uh it's a story about a series of characters uh in the lapd mm-hmm. starting in the 1930s um who kind of invent modern policing and what they do right and what they do wrong um and why uh why things go a little uh awry um right. and um <clears throat> but it's a it's just it's i have attracted to it for the same reason as attracted the bar mafia it, because it's, it's just it's some incredible personalities who are dealing with really hard problems which is how do you police a huge sprawling complicated city like Los Angeles? right and uh they think they have a solution and uh they they don't they don't get it right the first time um mm-hmm. and I love that kind of opportunity
0: to sort of um learn from um a real world problem well I'm, i'll be i'll be I'll be in line for it, the first one for audio uh, i i hope I hope to bring you back uh Fascinating conversation. I can't thank you enough, Malcolm. This has been great. Uh, it's been really fun. Yeah, it's been super yeah. fun. Like, I love your books. Like, I hope I'm not fanboying out too much, but I, I just I love what you're doing. Uh, I think it's it's absolutely yeah. fascinating. You've had such a great impact on my life, my wife's life. Like, uh, I can't I can't emphasize that enough. I, I told my wife yesterday, I was like. Uh, I was talking to her on the phone. I was like, "Oh, hey, uh, Malcolm's going to be on the podcast tomorrow." She's like, "Oh my god, are you fucking kidding me?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." She's so she's a big fan too. Uh, you know, I, I very rarely do I um, go on to yeah. to say platitudes, but you, this is not a platitude. Like, I, I'm so. Um, I'm such a big fan. Like I can't yeah. I can't say that enough. I I'm such a big that. Yeah, fan. I
1: really really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, we, I would totally happily come back. So Great. Uh, yeah, I'll pick me up on that invitation.
0: Perfect. I yeah, when you come back when, when come back and talk about anything. I don't care. We'll plug your podcast. Yeah. We'll talk about something else. I mean, our podcast, yeah. what do we get like 80,000 downloads a pop on an average Is that right? Yeah. So it's it's decent size. Yeah, it's a decent yeah. size podcast, but a, a fascinating conversation. I'd love to talk to you more about like you know combat split decision making complex problem solving is mm-hmm. one of these things that the the psychology of how people are making these decisions have you ever gone um and i, I i'm not i don't want to delay you too much but there's a there's a uh there's a book called Mozart's brain in the fighter pilot it was uh put out probably oh, like uh-huh. 2000 maybe uh-huh. and it talks about uh, it ta- And it talked about a, a, a fighter pilot named John Boyd. And he was oh, a Oh, yeah. yeah. It was John Boyd. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So the OODA loop, right? So observe, yeah. orient, decide, act, and then it's on a constant rotation. And yeah. uh, so John Boyd was like, I mean, he's such a fascinating person. So when you're talking, or when you were doing Blink, or and I was thinking about John Boyd. I was thinking about the OODA loop, I was thinking about Mozart's brain of the fighter pilot. I was thinking mm-hmm. about all these different pieces of information as they're coalescing around your book. And, in uh, the uh, that's one thing I was like, John Boyd is just this, if you, yeah, I figured, I figured you'd probably heard of him. So I was like, oh, Yeah. Say, uh, yeah. He's, he's, he's a fascinating he's a, person. Yeah.
1: Yeah. More to talk
0: about. Well, wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, in, if we can, like, we'll just send you um, a quick thank you and a you know gift basket. I like to send guys oh. gift baskets if that's okay. Uh, don't have to give me your real address. I'm sure you have a PO box. Uh, but just no, no, like, no. No,
1: no. Um, cool. on, uh, my assistant, who I guess you guys have been in contact. She can give you all that stuff.
0: Perfect. I want to just send you a quick thank you. But thank you so much, Malcolm. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Good. You right. well. see you, man.